Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Recently in Buffalo, New York, a seizure and rescue of some exotic cats was conducted. These are not tigers or other big cats we usually read about, but smaller ones, including servals and caracals. And, of course, we were curious and wanted to find out more. I'm pleased to welcome Kelly Donathan from World Animal Protection, where she serves as U.S. Exotic Pets Campaign Manager. Welcome. Thank you. Kelly, describe the seizure and rescue of these cats. What happened? Well, about two weeks ago, I was contacted by the New York Department of Environmental Conservation. They had received some information about uh, some wild cats that were being kept um, and allegedly being sold as pets, which under New York state law is an illegal activity. Um, So they reached out to us because they were wanting to confiscate these animals, but what they needed was a place for them to go. So our role was to help find uh, permanent placement for these animals in proper wildlife sanctuaries and also help facilitate the actual seizure in terms of getting the animals um, out of the home safely and immediately checked by a veterinarian and then transported to the uh, sanctuaries outside of the state. So what animals uh, did you rescue? We rescued uh, four servals, two caracals, and one savannah cat. Okay, so this is a great opportunity to uh, hear a little bit more about these uh, cats. I love uh, all wild cats, and I especially love the smaller ones. What, what's a serval? Yeah, so a serval is a, it's a wild cat species. Um, it's uh, native to mostly sub-Saharan Africa, but also to other parts of Africa as well. It's actually found in about 34 nations in Africa. Um, they are spotted cat species. Um, they have this beautiful coat, which unfortunately is um, one of the things that they are hunted for, is for their, for their coat. Um, they have a home range of about uh, 12 square miles generally. Um, one of the things that people really think about when they think about a serval is their ability to jump. They can actually jump um, almost about uh, 10 feet straight up in the air from a standstill. Mm. Um, so it's an interesting fact about them because it's one of the reasons why they're such a successful hunter is that they're able to get um, birds in flight, not just rodents on the ground. Um, and their average uh, hunting success rate is about 50%, which is quite higher. And tigers, I think, only get about like 10% of their kills. Um, and in some areas, uh, the servals are so successful with just rodents that that success rate gets over 80%. Um, they reach up between 30 and 40 pounds, and um, they unfortunately have been used a lot now in the wildlife trade for exotic pets, particularly here in the U.S. We're seeing them more and more throughout the country. Interesting facts, and uh, too bad, not surprising though. How about the caracal? The caracal um, is also known as the desert lynx. Um, It's uh, really well known for its long black tufts of uh, fur on their ears. Um, They are the largest of the African small cat species, um, so they also get up to about 40 pounds on average. Um, They are not only found in Africa, they're also found in Central and Southwest Asia and all the way into parts of India. And they have a little bit of a larger home range than the servals, about 25 square miles. Um, And occasionally they actually do hunt larger prey. They're able to take down prey for about two to three times their size. Also rescued was 
what was referred to as a savanna cat. I never heard that term. Yeah, savanna cat is um, a hybrid that has been created by uh, breeding a serval to a domestic cat. Hmm. Sounds like not a great idea. Um, so what sort of condition were the uh, cats in when you got them? So all of the cats um, besides the savanna cat were all about under the age of six months. So they were very young. Um, we suspect they were weaned uh, far too young, and unfortunately that led to um, quite a bit of malnutrition. The two youngest servals, uh, by their weight, we would guess them to be about two months old, but we actually think they're probably about three months. They're just in very poor body condition. Um, we're also finding that they uh, had quite a bit of um, parasites and infection um, and some other, other issues issues related to the malnutrition, including uh, low bone density and, um, and some issues with some of their internal organs. So unfortunately, yeah, they were not, not in great condition. Um, the older animals were a little bit better off, but also showed evidence that they were not at the weight that they should have been. So there's, there were some issues there with um, nutrition as being kind of the primary concern. The triage situation was basically to confirm that the animals were stable enough to transport um, because they, they had a ways to go. Um, the first transport was to Arkansas. It was about a 16-hour drive. So we wanted to make sure that they were in a good enough condition to get there and get in the full veterinary care that they would be receiving. So um, basically we did a, a physical exam. Um, we did decide that one of the youngest servals was pretty weak and um, quite dehydrated, so we gave him subcutaneous fluids, which helped perk him up a bit and um, give him that supportive care that he needed to make the, the trip safely. Do you know what happened to the individual uh, who was dealing with these animals? Well, um, the New York Department of Environmental Conservation is still looking into the case. Um, they gathered quite a bit of evidence, and at this time, um, we're not really uh, aware of everything that's going on within the, the legal case, um, but we know that, that it's ongoing and we'll hope, hopefully get to hear soon about what the outcome will be. We often talk about the uh, problem of tigers uh, privately owned in the United States. There are so many, probably more than in, in the wild. Do you see more and more private ownership or uh, dealing of these smaller cats as a growing problem? Yeah, I think um, similar to the tiger situation is that, you know, there's not a good cohesive legislation or regulation, um, which causes it to be just almost impossible to really get an idea of the numbers that are out there. Uh, but just judging by what we are monitoring online, I do see increased sales, particularly with servals and other hybrids. And I think, you know, we definitely hear quite a lot about the tigers because, you know, it's a huge danger issue and quite sensational to think about a tiger being chained in a backyard. Um, and, but unfortunately, I think that causes some of these smaller cat species to fly under the radar a bit more. They're not being as heavily looked at. And, uh, and they're somewhat more easily traded. Um, so it's, it is a big concern of mine that these smaller cat species are actually probably far more common in the trade than, than cats like the bigger cats like tigers. Um, but we're, we're not paying as, as much attention to it as we should be. Do you get the feeling that these cats are being smuggled in or are they being bred in the United States? We don't know exactly at this time what the, um, how the person acquired these, these particular cats that we, um, we rescued, but in general, um, my sense is that the majority of, of the cats that we're seeing in the U.S. as pets are being bred here in the U.S. in captivity. A lot of uh, ordinary cat fanciers, people who just like regular domestic 
kitties, they seem to be more and more attracted to those with special markings. They look like, you know, little tigers or little leopards. There's this cat called a Bengal cat, which I think is domesticated cat. What is what is that? Yeah, a Bengal cat is similar to the Savannah cat, um, but instead of being uh, a mix between a serval and a domestic cat, the Bengal cat is actually a hybrid um, from a breeding with an Asian leopard cat and a domestic cat. Um, so it is a smaller wild cat species found in Asia. However, we see that owners of Bengal cats often have the same issues that people with savannah cats have in the sense that you don't breed out those wild instincts. Um, the cats will ultimately feel frustrated in a home situation. Uh, we see a lot of cases where the people can't handle the constant urinating, which comes with trying to mark territory, which is the natural instinct for them to do. Um, even though they're smaller, there's lots of cases of people being attacked by their Bengal cats and or their smaller animals or children being attacked and then, you know, not being able to, you know, they may have had that nice bond with a small kitten, but as that animal matured um, and started to really not being able to express its natural behaviors, um, we're finding that a lot of sanctuaries get calls just as much about Bengal cats as there are the savannas and the true wild cats. Well, thank you for clarifying that because as, as, as you heard, I was under the impression that those Bengal cats were like ordinary cats with uh, just peculiar markings, but they're really hybrid. So thank you for explaining that. Tell us a little bit about World Animal Protection and what it does and uh, what your role is as the U.S. Exotic Pets Campaign Manager. Sure, yeah. Uh, World Animal Protection, uh, which was formerly known as the World Society for the Protection of Animals, is a global animal welfare organization. We work primarily on four key areas, including animals in communities, farming, disasters, and as um, animals in the wild. So here in the U.S., um, we'll be launching this new exotic pets campaign and, and really We'll be working with a bunch of different stakeholders and people involved in the industry, from consumers to people involved in in selling and trade. Um, But what we really want to do is educate people on the dangers and the realities of exotic pet ownership and what actually is happening in the trade that not everybody is seeing when they see a sweet, adorable animal for sale online or when they go into an exotic pet expo. Um, So we think... um, We really want to build on the fact that we know that most people who desire or already own an exotic pet really do love their animals. Um, They're just unfortunately not aware of the many animals who suffer and die as a result of the trade, as well as the challenges that they will face to provide for those animals, because unfortunately the average person just cannot create uh, an environment that is suitable for a wild animal. And ultimately what we want to do is see that social acceptability shift from saying, sure, it's okay to keep these animals in our home, to no, we, everybody wants to see animals in the wild and that's where they belong. And so we're hoping that, you know, while we'll be working on policy and legislation as well, what we really want to get at is the hearts of, of the people involved and try to see if we can get a shift in, in what we call the social acceptability of exotic pets. Well, it's a very worthy project. We'll be following along with you, and we're excited to hear about it. Uh, what's the website where people can visit and find out more? Yeah, that's great. It'd be wonderful if people want to go and visit www.worldanimalprotection.us. That's Kelly Donathan. Thank you so much for joining us on Animals Today. No, great. Thank you so much for having me. More with Animals Today after this break.
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today. We often say that Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, and we certainly cover the most critical and newsworthy topics and issues affecting all animals worldwide. When you join us, you'll hear fascinating interviews with leading animal advocates from all walks of life, from lawyers to whale protectors to authors to tortoise rescuers. Animals Today brings you timely, interesting animal news, and often our guests tell us how we all can take action to help our animal friends. But you know what? Just like you, we also love our companion animals, our dogs and cats and rabbits and more. Listen in and you'll get useful advice from expert veterinarians and animal behaviorists, as well as product news and reviews and more fun stuff. So join us on Animals Today and thanks for listening. Hey, Peter. Lori, hey. Peter Wallet Hub took an in-depth look at 2017's most pet-friendly cities. WalletHub's analysts compared the animal friendliness of the 100 largest cities across 21 key metrics. That's right. And they looked at three major areas or dimensions. One was the pet budget, two was pet health and wellness, and a third was outdoor pet friendliness. And within these three groups, there were many subgroups and there were various weightings given to these areas. So, for instance, in a pet budget, that was worth 25 out of 100 points on their scoring system. And items such as veterinary care costs or dog insurance premium. And then under the pet health and wellness dimension, which accounted for half of the survey, items such as the number of veterinarians per capita or the pet businesses per capita, pet-friendly restaurants per capita, we're interested in that, share of pet-friendly hotels, pet meetup groups per capita, and items such as those. And in the outdoor pet-friendliness dimension, which covered 25% of the survey results, items included dog parks per capita, walk score, pet-friendly trails per capita, and a few other items. So that's how they acquired the data, and the results are pretty interesting, aren't they? Did you look at them? I glanced at them. Oh, I was going to quiz you on them. My memory's not so good. Okay. What cities would you think fall in the most pet-friendly cities? Most pet-friendly. I would say most pet-friendly city would top be Austin, Cal- Austin, Texas. Yep. Number seven. Seven. Of the top ten, yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? Pet-friendly Tucson? No. No. I told you my memory's not so good. How but about... there's two others in Arizona. Really? Oh, you're cueing me now. Um, <laughs> I saw Phoenix and Scottsdale. Yeah, that's right. Scottsdale, number one. Yeah. Phoenix, number two. You know, it's just so hot so much of the year, so that's got to be a negative, don't you think? I guess not. Well, the city must compensate in other ways, right? 
okay, right, maybe there's like one vet for every two households or something like that. Right, really right. the score up. Well, number three was Tampa, Florida. Wait, that was one and two? Yeah, number one, Scottsdale. Number two, Phoenix. Right. Number three, Tampa, Florida. Yep. Number four, San Diego. I can imagine that, right? Okay. Number five, Orlando. Number six, Birmingham, Alabama. Number seven, Austin, Texas. Eight, Cincinnati. Nine, Atlanta, Georgia. And ten, Las mm. Vegas, Nevada. And then the least pet-friendly cities within this hundred, so the bottom 10, right? Yep. You want to take a guess? You want number 91 or number 100? (laughs) How about number 100? No, 100. Uh, Akron. Newark, New Jersey. Newark, okay. Yeah. Also in that bottom 10 of least pet-friendly cities, Charlotte, Anchorage, Philadelphia, Buffalo, Santa Ana, California, Boston, New York, Honolulu, Baltimore, and like I said, number 100 was New York, New Jersey. Hmm. Okay, there's more interesting data in this survey, and the first one has to do with veterinary care costs. And if they're, I guess if they're lower, that would help your score in this survey. So where are the lowest veterinary care costs? Those cities are Columbus, Stockton, Corpus Christi, Bakersfield, and Birmingham. And the highest veterinary care costs, the highest are Washington, D.C., New York, Newark, Newark, Newark's coming up a lot, yeah. Portland and, and Charlotte. Mm. Okay. The other, here's another interesting comparison, lowest dog insurance premium. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that there are regional differences in dog insurance, but obviously there are. The lowest dog insurance premiums, St. Paul and Indianapolis. And the highest dog insurance premiums come in New York City, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, Irvine and San Diego. Those cities are twice as expensive as the cheapest cities for dog insurance. Okay, here's the veterinarians per capita. The most vets per capita, which is purported to be a good thing, Miami, Miami, Florida, Lexington, Las Vegas, Orlando, and Cincinnati, and the fewest veterinarians per capita, Newark, Jersey City, Laredo, Texas, Boston, and Santa Ana. Wow, Newark is really not so good, is it? No. Most pet businesses per capita, also ranked as a positive, San Francisco, San Diego, New York, Las Vegas, and Seattle, and the least pet businesses. It's like the same, almost the same list. Laredo, Texas, Newark, Detroit, Irving, Texas, and Garland, Texas. Okay. Most pet-friendly restaurants per capita. Tied for first place is Orlando, Scottsdale, Atlanta, Honolulu, and also on the list, San Francisco. Pet-friendly, where you can bring your well-behaved pooch in. To the restaurant? Yep. Fewest pet-friendly restaurants, Omaha, Nebraska, not pet-friendly, Toledo, North Las Vegas, San Bernardino, and Detroit. Most dog parks per capita. Where are there most dog parks per human capita? Has to be some city in California. Well, here's the list. They were all tied. San Francisco, Portland, Las Vegas, New York. Wow. Henderson, Nevada, and Boise. Mm. And the fewest dog parks are places like Hialeah, Florida, Lubbock, Texas, Newark, New Jersey, Santa Ana. You know what I mean. And finally, most animal shelters per capita. I don't know whether this should be a good or a bad thing, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But which cities have the most animal shelters per capita? Chicago, Atlanta, San Diego, Denver, and St. Louis. And the fewest animal shelters per capita? Lexington, Newark, Jersey City, Laredo, Texas, and Detroit. So where do we want to move? We don't want to move to Newark, but how about Phoenix or Scottsdale? Okay. 
I'm good with that. Okay. All right. Now, how do you think our dogs would do in one of those pet-friendly restaurants? They would not settle. No. They would grab food off everyone's plate. And, I know. I don't know how and any dog. It. I don't know how any dog can be calm with all those smells everywhere. Yeah. You, know? oh. now you see these people with their dogs and they're just sitting there patiently. Yeah. Something wrong with these dogs. Listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, that's animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar, and thanks for listening. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. Welcome back. Next, I'm going to play my recent interview with attorney Richard Rosenthal, and I do think this is a topic and a situation you're going to want to know about. Mr. Rosenthal has some strong views, and for the record, they are his opinions only and don't represent those of Animals Today, the Radio American Network, or the stations running our program. We try to keep Animals Today fair and tasteful for our audience and also seek to give a voice to worthy guests when appropriate. So please check this out, and we'll look forward to reading your comments online. Here we go. A situation has developed in Connecticut where a dog named Simon is scheduled to be killed by authorities later this year. I want you to hear this story, and I bet you will agree that it is so unfair to Simon and his family. I'm pleased to welcome Richard Rosenthal, a New York City-based attorney. He is a national authority on animal and dangerous dog law and represents the family of Simon. Richard, what happened in this case? A teenager or a young adult cut through a fence to go get a ball, knowing there was a dog there. When he saw the dog, he threatened the dog with a stick, I believe it was a lacrosse stick. And when the dog reacted to basically threatening him, they brought a dangerous dog proceeding and I want to kill the dog because the dog was protecting its own home. Was this person trespassing? Absolutely. And the person received a bite. What happened? There wasn't a serious injury. Initially, the animal control officer ruled that it was justified and wasn't going to do anything because the person was trespassing. The family got friends who were politically connected. And uh, as in almost everything in Connecticut, it's who you know. Oh, boy. Um, politics trumped uh, the Constitution. 
How is it that the dog was uh, relinquished or, or confiscated? But what went down and who, who was present there? And um, did everything go according to the book? The details of the mechanics are the part that my partner handles. Okay. I deal with the legal side of it. They seized the dog under 22-358 under the law, which gives them unbridled discretion to do anything they please. The way it was done is not proper. No, because initially they issued a restraining order, which is proper, and then after the political um, fix was in, they seized the dog. Does Simon's family have any recourse or against the family of the trespasser? Can they sue him for trespassing? We're about to file a federal action uh, against the town and the family of the trespasser for both the trespass and violating their civil rights. Do the authorities at animal control have discretion of uh, what, how they should proceed here? You've got to understand, uh, Connecticut, in dealing with animals, if Gandhi said that a measure of society is how they treat their animals, in response to that, Connecticut is a third world country. Oh, gee. Connecticut has never overturned a kill order by an ACO, notwithstanding the fact that their animal control officers have high school degrees and absolutely no training in animal behavior or anything dealing with making the kill decision. Dr. Sherman has never met a dog he didn't want to kill. I can only suggest that the commissioner is more worried about finding a way to kill animals more efficiently by the legislation that he proposed to the legislature of let's get rid of any due process and just go straight to death. There are no civil rights in Connecticut. The Department of Agriculture and the Attorney General's office seems never to have heard and definitely has never read the Constitution. Uh, you're based in, uh, in New York City and uh, cover the, I guess, the New York metro area mostly. Are, is, uh, is it different in New York State and uh, New Jersey? Absolutely. New York State, the law says right in the law that the burden of proof is by clear and convincing evidence, that the burden is on the people to prove their case, and that there are safeguards. First, they have to determine, is the dog dangerous? And then if he's dangerous, there are specific, they can only kill the dog if you meet certain criteria. New York statute, as far as providing due process, actually does do a very good job. It recognizes there are defenses, and it says if it does not fall within one of the enhanced situations, you cannot kill the dog, and our courts have enforced it. Hmm. There are numerous decisions where the courts say, you did not meet the requirements for death, you cannot put that dog to death, period. Also, New York requires that a hearing be held no less than two days and no more than five days after the complaint is filed. Connecticut, on the other hand, allows you 14 days to appeal, and then they take between eight and 16 months to schedule a hearing. Considering that they don't do any discovery and there is no due process, this is simply, they're too lazy to schedule a hearing. 
This is just incredible. And during that eight to 16 months, yeah. the dog sits in a cage. It's too small, not being walked, not being let out, not being cared for. As I said, Connecticut, as far as animals are concerned, is a third world nation. You know, not long ago, we did a story where law students were serving as animal volunteer animal advocates uh, in the courtroom. And so we were hopeful that things were turning around in Connecticut. So this is so disappointing for, for me to hear. Um, the, the, even the law creating the animal advocates is seriously flawed. I see. It allows an animal advocate, if the DA in the court want it, except the animal advocate has no right other than to suggest to the court things to think about, which the court can then take or ignore at its will. They don't actually appoint an attorney to represent the dog. He is simply there as a, quote, friend of the court to advise the court on things to consider. Yeah. He cannot bring motions. He has no power. It was a nod to the animal activist community having no real power and no real meaning. This must be torturous for uh, Simon's uh, dad and the family. What's going to happen, do you think? We're going to be filing a suit in federal court against the town, against the trespasser, and against the people who violated their civil rights. And we intend to litigate this issue fully. Well, this is certainly of great interest to our listeners and any person who cares about dogs and our civil rights. So we certainly will be interested in following this. I hope that uh, you'll update this as we go along here. What a tough situation. You know, as, as one final piece of advice, I will add it that for anyone in Connecticut, if you have an incident and the animal control officer has not come in and issued a quarantine order or a seizure order. Our advice is to move the dog out of state immediately. Wow. Because allowing them to seize a dog in Connecticut is a guaranteed death sentence. There are no civil rights. There is no due process. Their contempt for the law and the Constitution is documented numerous times. And so the advice we give is if, there's no, if, if you have not been given an order, get the dog out of town while you still can to save his life. Gee. We do not suggest a disobeying it because then you're violating the law. But as long as there is no order, there is no legal impediment to saving the dog's life. We're speaking with Richard Rosenthal. Richard, how can listeners reach you if they need your services or want to learn more about what you do? Yeah, my website is Richard is the doglawyer.com. You can also, if you Google me, I'm in Queens, New York, and I'm also listed under the Lexus Project.org. Thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today and sharing this story with Thank us. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the platypus and specifically about two intriguing features of this peculiar creature. The bill of the platypus, described as being smooth to touch, with the feel akin to suede, and is flexible and rubbery, is used to scoop up its meals such as worms and shrimp from the muddy floors of streams, ponds, and lakes. As the platypus lacks teeth, gravel is also taken in at the same time, so its grinding plates can pulverize the food into small digestible bits. 
but the bill may be even more interesting for the specialized sense organ it has. Thousands of microscopic electroreceptors detect moving prey by sensing electrical activity associated with their muscle contractions. The skin of the bill also contains numerous mechanoreceptors called push rods, which are thought to aid in the animal's ability to detect and judge the direction and distance of moving prey. There's still much to be learned about how these sensors work and interact in concert. Another noteworthy aspect of platypuses are the venomous spurs on the heel of each rear foot in males. They appear to be used to fend off rival males during courtship and mating. So as cute as these creatures are, mine their spurs, because the venom they can inject is nasty. It will cause immediate, extreme, and long-lasting pain, which curiously is impervious to the pain-relieving effects of morphine. Its constituents are still being figured out, but one chemical lowers blood pressure and another looks to be a neurotoxin. Consider yourself warned. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Lori, have you heard the phrase organ on a chip? No. Organ on a chip. These are new uh, technological devices. These are like mini uh, artificial organs, and they are used in laboratories to uh, test drugs and learn how drugs might work on people without trying to test them on animals, which are often a bad model for what happens in people anyway. So... A whole new technology is beginning to rapidly grow. And this organ on a chip technology really has a wonderful potential. It will allow researchers to uh, test so many drugs quickly and effectively. They're little bioengineered devices, and as I said, could really replace animal testing for the development of new medicines and other uh, therapies. In England, uh, the Queen Mary University of London has just been awarded funding to establish a network uh, in the UK to develop organ-on-a-chip technologies, uh, including a lot of universities there, because they realize how big this is going to be, and they want to push this along. Uh, Another interesting thing that they are going to be able to do is test combinations of medicines and see how they might work on a given person. And when this hits the clinical scene, this is going to allow individualized medicine to really take advantage of this technology. So you might have a clinical test to see how a a medicine might work for a given person's uh, biochemistry. So the potential is really amazing. Right now, the market happens to be pretty small, but I guarantee within five to 10 years, this is going to be a huge financial market and a very important uh, research and clinical technology. And of course, we love it because it's better medicine. It's going to be healthier. It's going to promote the health and well-being of people, and it's going to move us away from the cruel industry of animal testing, which really needs to go bye-bye. Hey, Peter. Hey, Lori. How are you doing? I'm great. Peter, the third week of July is Coral Reef Awareness Week, and I thought we'd talk about coral reefs and uh, see how much you know about coral reefs. I was not expecting this. I know. So, coral reefs, as you know, are rocky mounds formed in the sea by living things through the accumulation and deposition of calcium carbonate, also known as limestone. Mm. Coral reefs serve as 
homes, which house many species of fish, corals, and many other types of marine life. Peter, what are coral reefs mostly made up of? Polyps, algae, marine life, sand. Polyps. That's correct. An individual coral is known as a polyp. It's a very small and very simple organism consisting mostly of guts, tentacles, and a mouth, toes, a mouth, and a chin, Mm -hmm. tentacles, a nose, and fingers. Whatever you said first. (laughs) That's correct. It's guts, tentacles, and a mouth. I didn't think there'd be a chin. (laughs) Thousands of identical polyps live together and form a colony, a coral colony, and each polyp excretes a calcium carbonate exoskeleton beneath it, and over long periods of time, the skeletons of many coral colonies add up to build the structure of a coral reef. How long is this reef building process, Peter? Like, are we talking in weeks, Mm. months, or are we talking decades and centuries? Well, I'm going to say centuries. That's correct. Wow. Yeah. What do coral use to kill their prey? Mm. Their tentacles? poison that they shoot out from their mouth or their teeth? Oh, I don't think it's the poison shooting. Uh, How about tentacles? It's the tentacles. So there's the the stomach topped by a tentacle-bearing mouth. The polyps extend their tentacles at night to sting and ingest tiny organisms called plankton and other small creatures. Reefs occur in shallow areas or in deep waters or both? Oh, I think shallow. Yeah, you're doing really good on this quiz, by the way. Coral animals Mm -hmm. that build tropical reefs require sunlight, so they're found in clear, shallow ocean waters. What does it mean when a coral reef is brightly colored? Is it overheated? Is it alive and healthy? Right. Or is it trying to attract more marine life? Well, it's alive and healthy, and maybe number three also. I don't know. I, I think alive and healthy is the answer. Coral reefs cannot live in temperatures less than how many degrees? Mm. 40 degrees Fahrenheit, 65 degrees Fahrenheit, 75 degrees Fahrenheit, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, how about 65 That's Fahrenheit? That's right. Okay, yeah. This is so interesting. What percentage of all marine fish species live at least part of their lives on coral reefs? Wow. Okay. I'll throw a number out there. I'm going to say uh, 20%. One third. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Which is at least 5,000 different species of wildlife. So we do need to protect those reefs. We sure do. The diversity of fish found on reefs is just huge. You ever been scuba diving? Never. I don't, I don't think I'd like it. No? How about yeah. snorkel? Are you okay with that? I'm okay with snorkel. Okay. Just going deep with oxygen in a tank scares me. Yeah. How about you? One time when I was a teenager. Did you like it? I liked it, but I don't think I knew enough to be uh, sufficiently uh, cautious. Would you do it again? No. Why? I'm a scaredy cat. Okay. I would go snorkeling. Let's, we should go reef snorkeling. It looks beautiful. I would love to do that. Yeah. So we know how important coral reefs are to life in the ocean. And despite this, all of them in the world add up to less than 1% of the seafloor. Isn't that amazing? Mm. What's the largest reef in the world? Mm. The Florida's Big Reef, the Sea Reef, the Fence Reef, the Great Barrier Reef. I'll say the Great Barrier That's Reef. Right. That's the one I know okay. about. <laughs> That's the only one you've heard of. Now let's talk a little bit about the threats to reefs. You have warming waters, right? right. Ocean right. acidification. Right. What else? The coral reefs are being degraded in other ways by humans like overfishing, right? Pollution from sewage and agriculture. Mm-hmm. And the fishing with the cyanide. I guess they dump cyanide in the water to stun the fish and make it easier for them to capture them. Is that correct? Right, right. 
and then sedimentation from poor land use practices. Mm -hmm. So reefs and their wildlife are also affected by the aquarium trade, right, Peter? Oh, yeah. Reefs and their wildlife are collected to serve as aquarium pets or decorative items. More than 1,800 species of reef fish, 140 species of corals, and 500 species of other invertebrates are used by the pet and home decor trades. Mm. So despite the importance of coral reefs, they're imperiled throughout the world. One recent report estimates that 75% of remaining coral reefs are currently threatened and may have already been lost. Okay, so as you mentioned before, the third week of July is Coral Reef Awareness Week. So uh, make sure to go online and teach yourself more about coral and coral reefs and look at some of those beautiful pictures and videos and then uh, consider going to visit one yourself like we're going to right Lori? that's right and also uh, understand the importance of these reefs and don't support the industries that destroy them and thank you for tuning in to animals today this is dr Lori kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet the animals Today's Animals Today Minute features the world's largest land carnivore, the polar bear. Mainly receiving nourishment in the form of seals, these majestic Arctic dwellers may reach heights of 8 to 9 feet and weigh as much as 1,700 pounds. Their adaptations to surviving the extreme climate include very thick white fur, even on their feet, black skin to absorb the warmth of the sun, a thick layer of blubber beneath the skin, and large flat front feet which aid in swimming. Newborns weigh only about a pound and stay with their mothers about two years. Polar bears are classified as an endangered species with only 20 to 25,000 left in the world. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute.